We're going to be in Acts chapter number 13 today. Acts chapter 13. While you're finding your places, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessings on the services today. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we thank you for another day that you've given us, Lord. And we thank you for this time that we have together here in church together. Thank you for those who've made their way out today, Lord. And Lord, for the fellowship we've had already, we just pray. Thank you for your word, and Lord, that we are able to uh, have your word before us, that each of us able to have a, a copy, have access to it, able to, to read it and to understand it and to apply it to our lives, Lord, and we, we praise you for that. We just thank you, Lord, that we're able to come together uh, freely and safely and to be able to gather in your name without uh, any sort of persecution and those kind of things, because we know that, that oh, that's often not been the case, and Lord, we just pray Ask you be with those who are still on their way out today, or that you'd watch over them, keep them safe as they come. Be with those who are unable to be here due to work or health or different reasons. And Lord, I just pray that you'd watch over and be with them too. Help us, Lord, as a, as believers and as a church, Lord, to, to be a light in this place that you've put us in, Lord, that we can live our lives in a way that uplifts you and glorifies you in the, the, the eyes of the ones that we come in contact with. Help us, Lord, to be able to speak boldly and proclaim your love and your grace, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you would help me today as I teach your word and preach your word, that you would just guide and direct me in the things that I say, Lord, that they would be true and accurate and helpful. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, bless each person here and give them exactly what they need from this service, that you would strengthen them, encourage them, and help them along in their way. And we thank you so much for all that you do, and all these we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 13, and what we've been doing as we've looked through the book of Acts is we've been following how God builds his church. And while Jesus was on this earth, he told his disciples that he would build his church and the gates of hell. Hell, Sorry, I went, I, my American accent came out, the gates of hell. <laughs> the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And anyway, um, that's what we're seeing throughout the book of Acts is the Lord is building his church. And I've said several times throughout this study that, it's often called the Acts of the Apostle, but really it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. It is over and over uh, emphasized that it is God that's doing the work, and that's very uh, important for us to understand because too often we rely on our own abilities, our own powers. Somehow we've gotten in our minds that we're the ones that have to do it. And we look at the examples of some of these people in the book of Acts and think that we've got to somehow make ourselves out to be like Apostle Paul or one of these other guys that we're reading about. Somehow that we've got to reinvent ourselves or we've got to muster up the ability. And what we don't realize is that God is able to uh, transform us to make us into what he wants us to be. That whenever he created us, the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah that while we were yet in our mother's womb, that he knew us and that he formed us. And we find that he has a purpose for each individual. Whenever we are saved, that the Holy Spirit gifts us with spiritual giftings and abilities to serve and to glorify God, to uh, be a part of the, the local church and doing the work that God has in the, the place where we are. We each have unique personalities. Uh, we have uh, special abilities and uh, preferences and likes and dislikes. And all of these things work together to be tools that God can use to reach this world with the gospel. And our part in it is that we seek him and submit to him. 
Okay, we seek him and submit to him. If we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors as ourselves, we've been looking at in the past. If we do that and we desire his will for our lives, we uh, submit ourselves to him and say, God, use my life. Do with me what you will. God will be more than happy to plug you in to his will and have a place and ministry for you. And it may not look like Paul. It may look like one of the many others that we see here, or it may not look like any of them because you are your own individual self that God has made unique for his purpose and for his glory. And so as we're looking at the book of Acts, we're seeing that it is God that does this work. And so over the past couple of weeks, uh, I'll, I'll look at uh, last week first of all. Uh, last week we saw that the, uh, Jerus- the Jews that were in Jerusalem uh, had kind of put their final rejection in against the church and against Jesus Christ. That Herod, as he was seeking to uh, gain favor amongst the Jews in that region and to elevate himself politically, he took James and James was killed. And all of the Jews were celebrating. They were glad that James was dead. And after that, it says that Herod went to take Peter also. And he says, I'll just start wiping out the church little by little. I'll be taking one leader at a time. And if they enjoyed watching James die, they're really going to enjoy watching Peter die. But God drew the line and he said, that's far enough. And he uh, uh, kind of as a result of the prayers of the saints there, Uh, released Peter miraculously. But as I said there a moment ago, this was the Jews uh, kind of signing their final rejection of Christ. That's what that signifies here. There is is their final rejection of uh, of the gospel and of uh, the church. And so we're going to see in this place that we're at, uh, there's a shift. It's been taking place slowly. I mentioned it several chapters back. But there is a shift that takes place now from the Jews to the Gentiles, okay? And we're going to be seeing a shift from Peter, which was the apostle to the Jews, to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, okay? We're seeing that going on now. And so last week we ended with Herod. He had uh, been made a fool, basically, there in Jerusalem whenever God uh, broke Peter out of prison. And so he went out to pick on someone else besides the Christians, uh, out to those of Tyre and Sidon, and they tried to uh, flatter him and tried to gain his favor, and he gave a speech, and they said, oh, it's the voice of the gods, and God smote him with worms, and he was consumed alive by worms. And so uh, Herod originally thought that he would consume away the church slowly and get rid of it, and God decided to consume him away slowly and get rid of him. And so I think God has a sense of humor. He turned the tables and he proved that it is not man that is in control, but it is God. Whenever man thinks that he is going to uh, undo what God is doing, they have another thing coming, right? And so today what we're going to see is that uh, Barnabas and Paul have been in the church at Antioch for a while. And the church at Antioch is going to send them out as the first missionaries. And I find this interesting because it isn't the Jerusalem church that sends out the first missionaries. Okay? It's not the, you'd think it would be the Jerusalem church. You'd think it would be the apostles that would be the ones putting their stamp of approval and that would be orchestrating all of this, but it's not. And this refutes the idea of there being some kind of a mother church. It refutes the idea of apostolic succession. 
it refutes the idea that Peter was the first pope, right? Because we don't see the, the church growing by those means anywhere in Scripture. We don't see those things being God's way of working all throughout Scripture. Instead, God does things a different way. And uh, just to kind of get a little bit more context, I want to, uh, I'm trying to think how to tie all this together, okay? But it was a couple weeks ago that the gospel was going out throughout the Gentile regions, and it came to the Jerusalem church, and they sent Barnabas. They didn't send him as a missionary. They sent him more as, I believe in their idea, as more of an enforcer. And what I mean by that, they said the Gentiles are hearing about Christ. There are Gentiles getting saved. We need a man down there to keep things in check. So he wasn't going to evangelize. He was going down there uh, more to check things out, make sure things were going the way they needed to be, to add a, offer a little bit of guidance to them, a little bit of discipleship, right? That's what he was doing down in Antioch. But whenever he got down there, uh, he was excited about it. He began encouraging them. And then he realized that it was more than what he could do. And that's whenever he went and sought after uh, Paul or Saul. And whenever he brought him to Antioch, it says that they stayed there for about a year. Then they took up a, an offering, a collection for the, the Jews that were the Jewish believers that were in poverty because of a drought. Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem, uh, spent a little bit of time there. That was whenever James was killed, Peter was imprisoned, and then they left Jerusalem, went back to Antioch, and now we're going to be reading about what happened when they came back, okay? So they spent time discipling the believers at Antioch. They left, and the church that was at Antioch in that short amount of time had people who had been discipled, who had grown, who had learned, and that was able to keep things going in their absence, and so what we're going to find is when they came back to Antioch, the Holy Spirit basically says, they no longer need you here, I need you elsewhere. And so he removes Paul and Barnabas from Antioch and sends them forth to the regions beyond to the Gentiles. And so they're going to be going through the regions of Turkey and Syria, and there's one other little place there just off to the west of Syria, a little place. I can't remember the name of it, but I need to look. I see it. What is it? Lebanon. There you go. I looked and I forgot. Okay. So the, the regions that they're going to be traveling through is going to be Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey. Okay? And that would have been Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And so we're going to look and see what the Holy Spirit is doing in sending out these first missionaries. So is everybody on track? Everybody know where we're at now? Okay. So Acts chapter number 13, we'll read the first few verses here. It says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Uh, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being brought forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. And so we'll stop there for right now. 
And I find this is interesting. This is kind of the Holy Spirit pulling back the the cover for us, and we're being able to look into that very early first century Gentile church and see what the, the church looked like in the first century, how they acted, how they functioned. And I think that it's it's quite a bit different than the, the way the church operates today. Okay? And so I've already talked about how Barnabas and Paul came down and was ministering to them. They were discipling them. They were instructing them. They were teaching them. They didn't have the New Testament yet. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had what God had revealed to them. Uh, Paul and his time in the wilderness and his searching the scriptures and the Holy Spirit had basically given him what he's written in the New Testament, right? And so he's still instructing him in that. And I believe Barnabas as well was instructed the Holy Spirit and led the Holy Spirit in the truths. And through all of this, they were able to get the the early church grounded and rooted in truth, okay? And one of the reasons I'm bringing this out is I believe that we have overcomplicated what it means to be a church and to be Christians. Uh, we've had 2,000 years to dissect and to dice and to tear apart and to uh, put God's Word under the microscope. We've got all sorts of uh, doctrines and commentaries and all these different ideas where people have studied things in depth, and we are supposed to study the Word of God, but we have uh, essentially taken the things that God has made as simple, and we have greatly complicated them, right? To where what ends up happening is that the church today seems more as if uh, there is one person, right, who studies and studies and studies, and then the church tends to be the ones who are the audience. They are spectators. They are the ones that are consuming the things uh, that one man is studying. But what we find going on in Scripture is that people are coming to Christ. They are being instructed in the foundational truths of the faith. They are being discipled in the simple things of what it means to be a Christian and to walk with God and seek after Him. And very quickly, there are people who are raising up from the spectators to become a participator, right? Within a year's time, they have at least three other men within this church that is able to teach and to preach and to uh, continue things going on in the church, even in the absence of Paul and of Barnabas, okay? And so rather than spending 20 and 30 years of dissecting the scripture and learning everything about uh, soteriology and eschatology and, and pneumatology and all these other ologies, right? Rather than that, they have learned the basics of the faith, the foundational principles of the faith, and they are able to take those and share them with others. And so what you have is Paul and Barnabas came. They instructed these believers who won their neighbors and their friends and the folks around them. And then those folks came in to be discipled. And then they went out and they won their neighbors and their friends and they came in to be discipled. And the church kept multiplying in that way because all of the people were being involved in the mission and the message of the church. And so they were going out and living it, a simple Christian life, living by the principles of God, a holy and separated disciplined life in the world which they lived in. And that was having an impact in the people who they ministered to. Think about it in these pagan regions which they lived in. If you come out of paganism, and just for instance here, I, I get ahead of myself just a little bit. It talks about them going to Cyprus and Salamis, and then uh, in verse number uh, six, they go to Paphos. 
Paphos was a center of worship for uh, the goddess Aphrodite, okay? And it was a fertility goddess. And part of the worship of that goddess at that city was that all of the women at that city were required at some point in their life to do their uh, what's what would be the the word for this um, anyway to put their time in I'll put it that way put their time in as a priestess to the goddess of Aphrodite which basically means that every woman in the city had to offer herself up as a prostitute at the city for all of the merchants and sailors and stuff that would pass through that port. All of the women. That means the wives, the mothers, everyone. They had to spend their time at some point in time. Kind of like the Mormons have their, their mission work that they do that every Mormon has to, you know, at 18 has to go out on their mission trip. Well, all of the women had to give themselves. That was what paganism was. It's what it still is. There is wickedness, there's debauchery, there is total immorality. And so for these believers to put that off and live pure and holy and Christ-honoring lives, amongst all of that, there would be a great difference. There would be a distinction, there would be a separation that takes place, not because they were uh, intentionally setting out to being weird, but whenever we walk according to God's principles, we are going to be distinct, we're going to be separate. And so for all of these people who were used to the wickedness and debauchery of paganism, many of them had a thirst, a hunger in their heart. And whenever they saw Christianity and saw what a difference it was, they said, hey, I want to look into this more. We're going to find whenever we get down to verses 6 through 13 that there is a Roman uh, Roman uh, ruler in this place called Sergius Paulus that is sick of being constantly bombarded by all of the stuff that's going on, and he is interested in the things of God. And see, this is what's going on. Whenever we as believers live by the simple principles of Scripture, not some uh, big, complicated, convoluted religion, not going through ceremonies and rituals and all these things, but simply living a life that is honoring to God, people around us take notice of it. And it is refreshing to them as they live in a wicked and perverse society. And so people come, and I'm not saying that we are uh, to be lifestyle evangelists, that we wait till they come. We are to be fishers of men. We are to go out and, and bring them in. We are to go to the highways and hedges and compel them. But unless we are living in such a way that they can see Jesus in our lives, we have nothing to offer. If we are just as debased and pagan as the world which we live in, then what do we have to sell? And I'm not saying that we sell Christ, okay? But just as, a, as an example, right? Because just, just keeping this idea of selling, are you going to buy something that's the same as what you already have? You know, I've, I've bought and sold a bunch of different cars in my life, okay? Peter has his, his Nissan Qashqai up there. If I have one that's just like it, and you're looking for a car, you're going to buy one just like the one you got? We're looking for something better than what we have. Always. We're always looking for something better than what we have. And so we need to be living in such a way that people are seeing Christ because Christ is better than what they have. And so if we are living truly to our calling and to who we are as Christians... 
it is better than what the people around us have by a great amount. Okay? And so this is what was going on back at this time. There was so much of a contrast before between Christianity and paganism, between the culture that was there and Christianity, that people were easily able to be a witness to the people they interacted with because the people they interacted with could see a difference in the life they lived. Okay? And that's why it's important for us to be in the scriptures and to know what God's word says and realize what the way he designed us to live, the things that are good for us, the things that are bad for us, for us to desire that which is good and put away that which is bad, because in doing so, we're living pure lives, we're living holy lives, we're living lives pleasing to him and lives that shine forth as light, lives that go about this world as salt, right? And it gets people's attention, and they have to make a decision. Either I'm going to look into this, and I'm going to possibly become a Christian, or I'm going to reject it wholesale. But either way, they are confronted with the truth of God's Word, and they can see it real in His people. Okay? And so in a very short amount of time, these believers were able to see the church grow, see leadership arise, to go out and to be evangelizing the world that was around them. And I believe it was all orchestrated, and we'll see this even more as we go through. It was all orchestrated by the Holy Spirit, okay? The people there, uh, this was very new to them, all right? I mean, Christianity was very new to them because it was new to the world at that time. And whenever something is new to you, whenever something is unfamiliar, you are a lot less likely to be complacent, to take it for granted, to just go through the motions. What happens whenever you get uh, too familiar, too comfortable with something? Yeah, you just you get complacent, right? That was one of the just as an example, uh, we were just talking about my father-in-law right before church. And uh, my father-in-law has worked in forestry and timber for all of his life since he was very young. Okay? And I, I worked with him for a long time as well. And if you're doing the same thing every day, you're working with saws, you're working with trees, it's a dangerous job, heavy equipment and things. But after a while, a long time of experience and being familiar with the job, you become complacent. You get a little overconfident. You don't pay as much attention, right? Mm -hmm. And so I watched at one point in time where he got, well, two different times, where he got injured in times where he probably, if he'd been paying a little bit closer attention, if he wouldn't have been so comfortable, he would have been keeping more distance from it, being more careful about what he was doing, right? A lot of drivers fall into the same thing. You've been driving for a long time. I'm a safe driver. I've never had an accident. Then you do something stupid, right? And so the reason I'm bringing this out is at this point in time, they weren't comfortable. They weren't complacent, but they were having to rely on the Holy Spirit for everything. In the world that we live in today, we've done church for years. We've done Christianity for years. We know what this is like. We know how it works. We know uh, the right words. We know the lingo. We know how to go through the motions. We become comfortable. We, can be, we become complacent with it. 
and we begin to rely on our knowledge, our wisdom, our ability, and we quit relying on the Holy Spirit. Right? And there's churches all around this world, some of them large in number, some of them extremely impressive, great congregations and things, but they've been doing church for so long that they just know how to do church. And they lose sight of the fact that they need the Holy Spirit. And it's not just churches, it's us individually as Christians. Because I can preach hundreds of messages. I can come through every week and I can uh, I can go through. I know I'm going to be in this chapter. I'm going to go through it this way. I know how to put the, the messages together. I know how to deliver them. I, I know all of these things and I can just go through it by routine. But if I don't have the Holy Spirit guiding and directing, then it is fruitless, right? It's worthless. We need the Holy Spirit for everything. We need to realize how much we need to rely upon him because even whenever Jesus was getting ready to ascend up into heaven, they were begging him basically, don't go. We want you to stay with us. And whenever he said, I'm leaving, they said, let us come as well. And he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, or at least not yet. And so they were desiring him to stay. And he says, but if I go, I will send another comforter. I will send you the Holy Spirit that's going to dwell in you and abide in you and do the very same things that I was doing, empowering, leading, guiding, directing. The Holy Spirit's going to be doing that in your lives. And he does that in our lives. Whenever we become a child of God, at the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have him in us, okay? But then there is a difference from possessing the Holy Spirit and having the Holy Spirit possess you. There is a difference between him being inside of us and dwelling us and him actually filling us. Whenever we get down to verse number nine, I don't know, I didn't read it, but it says, then Paul, or then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Ghost? Anyone have an idea? To be inspired? Change of the heart. Change of the heart. Okay. It does affect the heart. Okay. And so, yeah, you're getting on the right track with that. The word that's translated fill means to be controlled by. We find the verse that says, Be ye not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens whenever you go out and you are filled with wine? Whenever you are drunk? You're drunk. You lose control, you lose control when the wine takes over, right? Mm-hmm. And so you observe someone who is drunk. They are no longer themselves. Mm-hmm. They act like another person because something else is controlling them. Yeah. And so the comparison that God is using in his word for being filled with the Spirit is just the same way that you yield control to the alcohol whenever you're drinking. Hopefully none of you are yielding control to the alcohol while you're drinking. But anyway, just the way a drunk person has alcohol take over them whenever they are drinking, so we must yield to the Holy Spirit and allow him to have control over our lives. Very same way that a drunk person has to continue pursuing after the bottle to stay filled, we must continue pursuing after the Holy Spirit to stay filled, right? 
It's not a once and done type of thing, but as we are living our lives, we are desiring God's will and his purpose, and we're allowing the Holy Spirit to be the one that's guiding and directing, that he is the one that's in charge. And I venture to say too often, uh, we as Christians can't relate to that because we have too hard of a time relinquishing the reins of our lives that we are in control of us or obligations are in control of us. Other people or other things are in control of us and we rarely ever allow the Holy Spirit to have a say. And so whenever we look at the early church here and what we're seeing in this, it's somewhat of a foreign concept that the Holy Spirit is telling them to do this and to do that and the Holy Spirit is guiding them because too often we've never yielded ourselves and allowed the Holy Spirit to guide us. And now I'm not saying it's the Pentecostal idea of the Holy Spirit takes over, you lose control and you act like a wild animal. And there's some of them that say whenever the Spirit takes control, they start barking like dogs or speaking in tongues or rolling around on the ground. No. What happens whenever Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit? He's able to speak boldly and authoritatively the Word of God. He is able to evangelize the lost. He is able to have an impact in his community, right? And so I need to get back into this here. And so the first missionaries, it says that the, the church in Antioch had prophets and teachers. I said this is only less than two years, maybe a year and a half, something like that, since Barnabas was first sent from Jerusalem. And we have a listing here. Simeon, that was called Niger. Uh, many people believe that he was probably from Africa somewhere. Lucius, that was of Cyrene, that would have been a Gentile. And Menaean, which was a Jew, it says that he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. What, what that essentially means, he went to school, okay, with Herod the Tetrarch. He was the guy that killed John the Baptist. And so you see a difference in two men raised in the same environment going completely different paths, right? And so Menaean here was a pillar in the church. He was one that was a teacher and a prophet. Now, I want to go back just a moment and look at this idea of being a prophet as well. This doesn't mean necessarily that he was going in and prophesying like Elijah and Isaiah. Okay, Prophecy has uh, two different parts to it. You have foretelling and foretelling. Okay, and considering they didn't have scripture, they didn't have the, the New Testament in, uh, in that time, we find there's different times that's referred to as a gift of prophecy and prophesying, but that is the ability to speak the word of God authoritatively. Okay, doesn't mean that he can tell you what the lottery numbers are. Doesn't mean that he's going to tell you the future, but he is able to boldly proclaim the word of God. Okay, there's still people today who have the gift of prophecy doesn't mean that they're going to tell you the future. It means they're able, that by the leading of the Holy Spirit, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay? And so anyway, we've got these different men here. And it says, they're ministering to the Lord. They're fasting, verse number two. And the Holy Ghost said, and I don't believe it was a booming voice audible from heaven. It was the Holy Ghost was speaking in their, in their midst. He was guiding them. He was orchestrating this. He was making it clear. And he said, separate unto me uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto, and here's the key thing, I have called them, right? The work that I have called them to. It isn't 
men that are orchestrating this. It isn't the church that is saying, hey, we need to send somebody out. Who can we send? It wasn't even Paul and Barnabas saying, hey, I got an idea. I'm getting kind of tired of being in this one place. Let's go somewhere else. But instead, the Holy Spirit is orchestrating this. And I believe it starts in the heart of Paul and Barnabas. And the Holy Spirit is stirring up a desire. He is moving them. He is giving them a burden. And he is confirming it in the church. Okay, I can relate to this because whenever the Lord was dealing with us to come to Ireland, that he was dealing with me and Les. And he was guiding us and he was showing us this is where he went. It wasn't a voice from heaven, but he made it clear what his will was. And as we were doing those things, the Holy Spirit was also revealing it to our pastor and our church family. And we told the story before. Our pastor called us up and said, okay, what's going on? And we played dumb. We said, well, we didn't know what you're talking about. And he says, you guys are going to Ireland, right? We said, yeah, that's what we've been dealing with. And so God was confirming it in his church and he was sending them forth, okay? And all the way through this passage, and I'm... I probably won't get to it today. It'll be next week. But whenever Paul and Barnabas get out in the mission field and they are going and they're uh, coming in contact with different uh, different people, as they are preaching, their message is going back and showing all the things that God has done and how God has orchestrated the means of salvation and that God is offering up salvation and that none of it is from man. None of it is orchestrated by man. It's not planned by man. It's not performed by man, but instead it is a work of God in the hearts of men, in the, the world in which we live in, that God is the one that put it all together. And we'll see that played out in the last half of chapter 13, but like I said, we'll probably get to it next week. And so in the first three verses, we see their calling, and God is still seeking people who are willing to go on his behalf. He is still seeking. Uh, whenever the Lord was on this earth, one of the only prayer requests that he ever gave was pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers unto his harvest. He wants people who are willing to go, not necessarily to foreign lands, but at least to their community, but he wants people who are willing to go, willing to submit to him, to be used of him, to carry forth the good news of the gospel. This passage, one thing that it tells us clearly is that God desires for the gospel to go forth. He desires for people to be saved. And so things were going good in Jerusalem. Things were going good in Antioch. And the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'm glad things are going good here, but I want it to go further. And so the Holy Spirit is never satisfied with things as they are because God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So God is dealing with people. God is calling people. God is desiring people that they would go on his behalf to preach the word of God to those who need to hear it. Okay? And so the second thing that we see in this, uh, they were called of the Holy Spirit. He was the one that was in charge. It wasn't the Jerusalem church. It wasn't the church at Antioch. It wasn't the apostles. It was the Holy Spirit that was doing it. And the people that, that were there, they were in tune to the Holy Spirit. They were seeking God. They were following his spirit. And because of that, the Holy Spirit was able to work in their midst to guide their direction, to call these men from them. Something else important about it is the church that was there was willing to let them go. Could you imagine being in that church and having Paul and Barnabas in your midst? 
the ones who had come and invested so much time and spent so much effort there. And then the Holy Spirit says, okay, you've had them long enough. I'm sending them somewhere else. Right? And so he says, separate them to the work whereunto I've called them. And then we come down to verse uh, four and five, and we see the methods that Paul and Barnabas was using as they went out. So as you're following the Lord and as he is directing you and as you're seeking to be a witness, how do you go about it? And it says in verse four, so they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, so Holy Spirit was directing, right? I'm going to reinforce that over and over again, being in tune with the Holy Spirit. They departed into Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. What is significant about Cyprus with this whole endeavor? Any ideas? Okay, well, that was definitely a good thing about it, right? It was. It's a little island just off the coast of Turkey, and so there would be... Lots of boats coming and going. We talked about the Temple of Aphrodite, right? So paganism, all kinds of superstition and ungodliness was going on. But one of the most significant things here is it was Barnabas's hometown. You ever think of that? Barnabas was a Cypriot. He was from Cyprus. And so God in his wisdom, the Holy Spirit in his wisdom is sending first. See, Saul has already went to Tarsus after he got saved, right? And now as he is leaving uh, Antioch, Barnabas is going to his home country, his home island, his hometown to evangelize the people that he loves. He's going to his Jerusalem. And so he comes down to this place where it's people that he is familiar with, a culture that he's familiar with. Yes, he is a Jew, but this is where he was raised in a Gentile area, right? And so he is going amongst people that he knows and going amongst a culture that he's familiar with to be a witness at home first. Something interesting is if you're not being a witness at home, God's not going to send you abroad. But whenever we're trying to be a witness, the most natural place for us to be a witness at is to the people that we're familiar with. Sometimes it's the hardest, but it should be the most natural for us to go to the ones that we have relationships with, those that we know, those that we can relate to, those that speak the same language as us, right? And not only that, whenever they got there, where in Cyprus did they begin? Go ahead and say it. <laughs> okay. Okay. But what Anna said, they started in the synagogues. Verse number five, when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Paul and Barnabas were Jews. They were, Barnabas was from that island. And so whenever they came there, they went to the place where they had the most in common, the place where they can make an impact. Not only that, but as they were going to the synagogue of the Jews, the Jews already had an introduction, a 
an understanding, a foundation to the things of God. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They knew about the Messiah. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had a foundation already laid. And so they were going somewhere where there was common ground, and they were starting at that common ground and working from there. So if we think about it, as we're trying to be a witness here, we're going to be a witness in the place where people are familiar with us, in amongst our friends, our neighborhood, our job, right? Those are going to be the people that we are around, the people that we can relate to, the people that we already have common ground with. In addition to that, you're going to be a lot better off carrying a conversation, uh, in the beginning at least, with someone that's from a uh, Christian background rather than from, say, Muslim or Hindu or something like that, right? Because you already have a common ground to work from. So you go to someone who's raised up in Catholicism. They've got some blinders on, but you go and say, well, you believe in God. Yes, I believe in God. You believe in Jesus, that he died and was buried, right? Yes, I believe in that. You believe in the Bible. Uh, you might, that's, that's iffy because they're starting to, in current times, they're starting to uh, question the Bible, even within Catholicism. But they're starting to question the Bible even with that. But you have a basis, you have a foundation that you can work from there because at least they know about Christ, right? And so that you're able with that to have that common ground and you can have conversations. You can even open up the scriptures and you begin to talk to them and lead them through this in order to have an impact on them for the cause of Christ. Uh, next week, what we'll be looking at is whenever they... Uh, come into um, let me see when they come into Perga they leave Cyprus they go up to Perga and they go in on the Sabbath day they go into the synagogue and the people that are at the synagogue says hey we've got a few uh, Jewish brethren that are visiting us here maybe they have something to say and so they say Paul Barnabas you got anything that you would like to speak about and they say as a matter of fact we do and they stand up before the people there and they preach the gospel to the Jews in their synagogue. They take the Old Testament. They tie the scriptures together. They show God's plan and how God worked out his plan, how it culminated in Jesus Christ. And they said all of the things that the prophets were telling about, Jesus fulfilled it. He came. He brought forth salvation to whosoever believeth. And so then there are some that believe. Then there's some Gentiles that are looking on and listening on. They're like, hey, this sounds good, and until the Gentiles start believing, the Jews are interested. When the Gentiles become interested, then the Jews get mad about it. Okay, but like I said, that's that's next week. But what we're looking at here, we saw uh, we saw the the calling of Paul and Barnabas. We see the method that they're using. They are looking for people who they can relate to. They are looking for people they have common ground with. They are looking for people who have a foundation, a little bit of knowledge, somewhere to work from whenever they are first going into these areas. It's not saying that they're ignoring everyone else, but these are the wisest places for them to start. So if you want to be a witness, God has surrounded you with different people that you have things in common with, that you are able to uh, start from those common ground, those, those commonalities that you have, and lead them to at least consider Christ. Okay? And so that's what he has them doing. But the third thing that I want to look at today in this passage and that we haven't read yet 
And uh, this is as far as I think we'll get. But in Acts chapter number 13, uh, we have read down to verse number five, and we're going we're gonna to look at verse number six. We're going to start with verse number six. And when they had gone through the Isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was the excuse me, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O fool of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist of darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now when Paul and his companions loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. And so as the the apostles, he, or, well, I guess I can say apostles, as the first missionaries are being sent out of Antioch, they go through Barnabas' hometown, they leave, uh, uh, leave the first city, they come into Paphos, which was the, the place that I said was the center of worship of Aphrodite, okay? And whenever they come there, they are preaching, they are teaching, and one of the Roman uh, leaders in that area hear what they have to say. He catches wind of it. He is interested in it. And so he sends for Paul and Barnabas. And so this would be like the governor of the area. This would be uh, the one who represents the Roman government on that island, okay? And whenever he hears about Paul and Barnabas, he catches wind of a little bit of their message. He says, I must hear more about this. But there is a man that is part of his part of his cabinet, if you will. There is a man that's there, maybe somewhat of an advisor to him, okay? And he is a Jew, but he is a Jew that has forsaken God and has welcomed in uh, basically witchcraft and sorcery. He is a false prophet that is now uh, a counsel to this Roman, uh, this Roman leader. And so whenever uh, this man is interested in the things of God, Satan already has his man there. And so what I want us to get from this is Paul and Barnabas were called. They had the right methods, but they also have opposition against them. And for us as Christians, any time that we are seeking to serve the Lord, any time that we are trying to be a witness to people and to preach the gospel to people, to share the gospel with people, there will be opposition. Satan does not like whenever people hear the gospel. Satan does not like whenever people get saved. He does not like whenever there are souls being won and there are lives being changed because he wants to keep them in bondage. And he knows that one day he's going to hell and he wants to take as many people as he can with him. 
He knows that God loves the world, and so Satan hates whatever God loves, and he desires to destroy it. And so as Paul and Barnabas are coming here, Satan already has his emissary there and waiting. And so as, uh, um, as this man, Sergius Paulus, is interested in the gospel, he, as he's sending out and wanting to hear from Paul and Barnabas, Eliamus the sorcerer, Bar-Jesus the sorcerer, comes in and tries to do everything he can to refute what they're saying, to keep this man from listening to what they're saying, to keep them away from the gospel so that he will not be saved. And so how does that play out in our lives? We talked about the different parables of the kingdom a couple weeks ago, right? That whenever the, the word of God goes out, that the enemy sends forth the birds and they snatch away the seed that was sown. Remember that? Yeah. And a lot of times in our lives as we're trying to be a witness to people, it seems like as soon as we're trying to talk to people, as soon as conversations open up, there is a distraction that comes about. There is something else that enters in. There is a, a wall that gets built, whatever. Whenever we tell them these truths, then there's something else that comes behind and seems like it just snatches it away. Where does that come from? We have an adversary, right? And so we need to realize that when we're serving God, there's going to be opposition. And if we realize it ahead of time, we're aware of it ahead of time, then we're not discouraged about it whenever it comes. If you attempt to serve the Lord, if you go out and if you pass out gospel tracts, if you try to be a witness, if you uh, are sharing the gospel with your co-workers, there are going to be things that come up. There are going to be uh, barriers that pop up. There are going to be uh, these kind of, as I said, distractions and stuff that come about that are going to keep them from hearing and keep them from believing. And probably some of us have had that happen, right? I think Anna was saying she's been uh, talking to one of her co-workers and something just always keeps coming up, right? Something always keeps coming up and talking to your co-worker and she says, oh, I'm going to come out to church, right? And then something comes up. And Satan will give us excuses. He will give the people that we are uh, witnessing to, he'll give them distractions. He'll do things that discourage them because he doesn't want them to hear he doesn't want them to believe. And so whenever Paul and Barnabas is sent out, they're going, they're preaching, they're seeing some interest, they're seeing some results, but the enemy is also pushing back and seeking to discourage them at this time. And so Elimus tries everything that he can, but Paul, remember I said how important it is that we are filled with the Spirit, right? Paul was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit guided him to confront this man face-to-face. -face. Remember, this is a man that is in a powerful position. He is an advisor to the ruler of the island. And could you imagine, you know, the, the advisor to the ruler, and you're just the guest coming, you're the guest preacher coming about on the island, and standing there face-to-face -face with this guy and saying what Paul said? You think that would work out well? Y'all remember what Paul said? O full of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, will thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? If you're going to talk like that to someone in a position, you better make sure the Holy Ghost is guiding you. 
you better make sure he's the one that's leading you to say it. I kind of wonder if in the back of Paul's mind, he's like, God, you really? Shut, shut. I'm, I just got here. Right? But we see what the, the Lord does in this. He blinds Eliamus. And I can't help as I'm reading over this to think back about Paul's conversion. It wasn't that Paul was seeking the destruction of this man. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit was seeking the destruction of this man. Because we find that whenever Paul was, uh, whenever Paul was confronted by Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus, right? Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. Basically, he says, you have been attacking God. He said the same thing to Paul as Paul is now saying to Eliamus, right? And Paul was struck with blindness. Eliamus was struck with blindness. We don't know how this goes in Eliamus' case. Yeah, we'll find out one of these days. But we don't know how it went. We don't know if after this time of blindness and he was seeking someone to lead him by the hand, if at that time he listened to what Paul had to say, if he ended up becoming a Christian as a result of it, if he got saved as a result of it, or not. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But I can't help but to think that Paul is looking at Elimus that he is relating himself to Elimus and saying, I was there one time. God dealt with me in this way, and look at how he transformed my life. And we can hope that the same thing happened in this guy's life. We don't know. But as a result of what happened, this deputy, when he saw what was done, believed being astonished, not at the miracle, not at the fact that this guy got blinded, but he was astonished at the doctrine of the Lord, the teaching is what got his attention. And the reason I bring this out is so many people today are looking for something that's going to uh, astonish them, but they're looking not in the Word of God, not in doctrine, but they're looking in experiences. They're looking in miracles. They're looking in things that are uh, uh, phenomenal and all these things. And really what they need to do is get a good view of who God is of what his word says, because the fact that the God of all creation would come to this earth as a man because of his love that he has for us, and that he would be beaten by his creation, that he would die at their hands, that he would resurrect himself the third day, and then he would offer salvation to all those who had mistreated him so badly. That's pretty incredible, right? That's more astonishing than Elimus being temporarily blinded. Wouldn't you agree? How many times does someone have to do you wrong before you write them off? If I would come and mistreat Peter and I would lie to him, I would steal from him, whatnot, how many times could I do that before Peter's just like, I'm done with you? He might be a generous soul. It might be a time. He might give me a second chance. If he's dumb, he might give me a third. Yeah. Right? No offense. But that's how we think about it, right? Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you, right? Or fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. In that way, way it says. 
But with God, we sin against him. We sin against him. We sin against him. He's still willing to forgive us. After we put our faith in him and he saves our soul, we still fail. We still sin. We still mess up. He still forgives us. Is that not astonishing? There's no man that would do that. But God does so much more. And so anyway, uh, Elimus tries to withstand the work that they are doing. He tries to silence the message that they are preaching. And because this was directed and ordered and empowered by the Holy Ghost, the devil is defeated. The word goes out. People are saved. The church grows. Right? Gospel goes forth. But I don't believe Satan was done yet because in verse number 13, we find something interesting that happened is that whenever, in those first three verses, whenever the Holy Spirit came to the church at Antioch, they said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas, right? And so Paul and Barnabas was sent out, but there was one more man with them, right? There were two that was sent and one that went. Mark, John Mark. And as he went with them, he saw these things going on. He's following along with his uncle Barnabas, right? And he's seen some wild things. He's had some difficult experiences. And so whenever they get to uh, Perga and Pamphylia, John says, I've had, John Mark says, I've had enough of this. I'm going back to Jerusalem, right? And he abandons them. We'll find later on it causes contention between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wants to give him a second chance and Paul's already wrote him off after once, right? But could you imagine with being Paul and Barnabas as you're going about, Mark's tagging along and you're trying to disciple him, you're trying to encourage him, doing a little bit of mentoring and whatnot, and Mark just abandons the work and becomes discouraging. So whenever the devil fights against us, uh, it's opposition that comes. It can be discouraging to us. But a lot of times, whenever we see believers fall by the wayside, it's discouraging to us as well. Right? Thankfully, Mark is later restored. Thankfully, Mark joins the team again. And Paul, by the end of his life, he says, bring Mark because he is profitable unto me. Mark has been restored. He has proven himself. Yes, he had a little bit of a hiccup there at the beginning, but now he's doing well. But it is discouraging whenever we see people that we used to serve with lose interest and fall away. It's discouraging whenever we see people doing these things, but it's part of life. It's part of what happens. But here's the, here's the challenge for you and me, okay? God has a work for us to do. We need to be filled with His Spirit, guided by His Spirit, aware of the oppositions, and relying on Him through the oppositions, and not become discouraged no matter what anyone else does. Because it is about Christ. It is about what he has done. And it's not about any of them. It is about him. Okay? That makes sense to everybody? And so in these verses that we looked at this morning, we'll go ahead and, and close with this. But we've seen their calling. We've seen their method. We've seen their opposition. Next week, we're going to be looking at their message. Okay? So does anyone have any questions, comments, anything on this today? Well, just to get in 
think with clarity from the descending. You see, as we were reading, it shows like Paul, not Paul, I think it's, it's Mark and others, mm -hmm. they were sent from the church in Jerusalem mm -hmm. to go and assist in other ways today mm -hmm. in those regions. So I would like to know when they were sent from those church, which church are we talking in Jerusalem that they were sent from? Okay. Well, it was the church, the body of Christ, but it wasn't that it was confined to one particular group or one building at that time. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, the church at Jerusalem had probably grown to at least thousands. We saw 2,000 saved and 3,000. It was probably over 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. And it's not like they were gathering together in a you know 10,000 seat auditorium. You know, rent out the Colosseum or something. That's not what they were doing. But it says that they were gathering together with fellow believers daily from house to house and breaking of bread, fellowship, and things. Mm -hmm. And the apostles were going out and ministering group by group to all these different groups, right? And so the church was all of the believers in that location, and they were ministering one to another and connected one to another. But a lot of times they were gathering in the synagogues, in the temple, uh, in different houses and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they were ever all gathering together at one place because that would have been a, a massive amount of people, right? Now, you touch on the on the thinking that I, mm -hmm. I was trying to struggle with. You said yeah. sometimes they meet in synagogues and, and temples. Um, it's not in that time the synagogues and temples that were occupied by so-called uh, what's the name the Jews Pharisees and Jews so how, how well for a time mm. until opposition and persecution really arose against them mm. they were able to meet in the synagogues and in the uh, in the temples because the Jews met on Saturday okay the Christians met on Sunday okay in temple and synagogues yeah so they're, they're different because with okay with the Jewish temple that was at Jerusalem okay okay yeah. it was a center for community activity okay okay and so whenever they weren't having their normal day to day activities and stuff going on mm -hmm. uh, all of the Christians could come meet together in one of the regions maybe you know the court of the women or the court of the Gentiles or mm -hmm. one of these other courts and they could gather together in this public place and minister one to another, preach the gospel, do these different things, uh, we see as we go through their, the methods that they used, uh, they would go to the, the synagogues. Mm. And the synagogues operated a lot like a church. Okay? Sure. So the, the, the Jews would come together on the Sabbath day, uh, which was Saturday. They would come together on the Sabbath, and someone from amongst them would read Scripture and then they would exhort, they would encourage the people from the scripture, have an explanation. If there was a priest or a rabbi or someone traveling through, they'd be a lot of time, hey, we've got so-and-so here. You mind coming up and, and giving us a word of encouragement? And that's where Paul and Barnabas gets their, their entry into it is they would show up at the, the synagogue and they're talking about God. They're reading the prophecies. They're doing all this. Mm. And they say, hey, you have a word. And they say, yeah. You know, this prophecy, this prophecy, this prophecy, look at what Jesus did. Look at his life. He fulfills these prophecies. God said that he would send 
uh, the seed of Abraham, that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, that uh, one of the house of David, and all these different things, ties it all together and says, it's Jesus right here. He died on the cross. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. We saw him. We talked to him. He went to heaven, and he has told us that whoever believes on him as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that died, was buried, and resurrected, that they shall receive forgiveness of sins. And so he preached the gospel from the Old Testament to the Jews in their synagogue and in their temple until they got mad about it and ran them off. Right? Yeah, I was trying just to to, to get separation between Mm -hmm. this is any stage of Christianity, Mm -hmm. church per se, Mm -hmm. and once once the scripture said they were sent from the church, Mm -hmm. so automatically to me it's like they were sent from the synagogues and, and, and temples, mm-hmm. which it doesn't okay. match up because that time synagogues and temples still occupied by right. Pharisees and, 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 and Jews. Okay, yeah. okay so to, to, to bring clarification to it, okay? Sure. Um, we have a hard time separating the building from the people. people yes. Okay? And so whenever we talk about church, we think of the building. building. But what it is, it is the people. It is the body of Christ. It is the believers that make up the church. Yes. Okay? And so the church, which is at Jerusalem, wasn't the synagogue. It wasn't the temple. Those were simply meeting places. This is a meeting place. This is where the church meets. It's not actually the church. Okay? And so with the Jerusalem church, they didn't necessarily ever all meet at one place, but they were the believers, the body of Christ, and they had uh, leaders within the church. They had pastors, elders, they had deacons within the church that were the leadership. And so as um, these things were being heard about in Jerusalem and the believers were talking about and saying, did you hear what's going on in Antioch? Did you hear about the Gentiles being saved? And they came to uh, maybe Peter or maybe James and some of the others and said, we've heard that the Gentiles are getting saved. Uh, Should we do something about it? And so they said, hey, yeah, we probably should. Uh, Let's find somebody and send them to check this out. And so it ended up being a lot more organic than what we would think of it being. Because so many things today are very uh, mechanical, uh, very ceremonial, all these different things. But instead, it was these people who were ministering to all the believers at uh, Jerusalem heard about this. And so all the believers said, hey, we need to do something about it. And so they sent one of them down to this group of believers. So we have to separate this idea of the location of the building. We need to separate that from the people who are born again, who are saved, who actually make up the church. Okay? Anything else? No. Do you have something you want to say? I thought you you look like you want to say something. Okay. There's nothing else. Go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll take a short break before the next service. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for this time that we've had in your word. I pray that it's been beneficial to those who have heard. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us, Lord, to uh, see the need to uh, submit ourselves to you, to be led of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, guided by the Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be uh, willing to 
be, uh, be used of you to be a witness in this world. Help us, Lord, to, to go amongst the people that we, uh, we see each day, the people that we have different connections with, Lord, and be able to uh, live the truth of your word before them and be able to speak it before them when we have opportunity. Help us not to be discouraged by the opposition that arises. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.